another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Uh, today's going to be episode 357 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, what we're going to be doing today is our second official call-in Friday. So uh, I want to throw out the invitation right now. I need new calls. I've been going through the old ones. And I, I don't screen my calls regularly. At least I didn't. I'm, I'm trying to do that now. Screen them as quick as they come in. I want to remind you, this number is for you to call in and ask a question for something to be done on the air. As I've gone through some of these calls that are you know, several months old, because uh, I wasn't able to do these types of shows very often before I went full-time with this, uh, I found quite a few calls that were just like calls to see if I would help somebody with something or would I get involved with something. Email me. Don't use this number to like correspond with me. That's not what it's for. It's for the air. But if you do have a question or a comment you'd want on the air, the number is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, and maybe you'll hear yourself on the air like a caller today. Um, before we get into uh, today's show, though, with a lot of great questions and comments, uh, I want to talk, knock out the uh, typical housekeeping. Let's start out with our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. Um, I love doing business with these guys. I love having them as a sponsor. Uh, I want to let you know they have two big specials going for their Buyers Club members right now. Really great ones. One is, I think it's like 60-something bucks uh, per can for uh, uh, cans of de- freeze-dried dried gulf shrimp. Uh, it's a pretty good deal when you figure out how many shrimp are in that can. And then the one that I just bought myself is they're selling a case of um, pork chops. For right at 190 bucks for Buyers Club members, this is six number 10 cans. Uh, it's a pretty dadgone good deal. See, there's uh, 28 pork chops in a can. Times six, it's about 168 boneless pork chops uh, for 190 bucks. Now, freeze-dried, you know what that means. That means when you reconstitute it, and these have to be cooked. They're not cooked. Uh, so you reconstitute them and cook them, they taste fresh. Uh, that comes out to about $1.14 a pork chop. Now, that's a buyer's club price for them. So if you're not part of their buyer's club, you pay the full price, which is 240 bucks. So your buyer's club would pay for itself. But remember, you join the member support brigade, you get their Buyers Club membership lifetime for free. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second as well. So, sponsor the day number one, Save Castle Rule. Check them out. I'm telling you, great people that do business with Vic is, uh, Vic is a guy that's not in the business just to be in the business. He's in the business because he cares, and he's a prepper in real life just like the rest of us. Uh, next sponsor today, Survival Seed Bank. Check out Survival Seed Bank. Again, whenever I bring these guys up, I want to I explain to you what the purpose of the Survival Seed Bank is. It is not necessarily for buying and planting it this spring. You could, you might need to, but that's not really what it's for. What it is is a massive store of seeds um, in a uh, in a an indestructible container that can be stored anywhere for uh, with a shelf life of up to 20 years, so that you have a store of seeds for the future. Something I really recommend you look into. Uh, as you know, I'm big on producing your own food. What the Survival Seed Bank does is make sure there is stock for you to use for producing your own food for two decades. 
That's pretty cool. So check that out. Moving on, uh, get involved with our forum. Be part of our community. Please do that. I mentioned it yesterday, but I'll do it one time again because it's on my mind before I forget to do it again. Region 4 is having a get-together. That's the Illinois area and all the states around there. If you're in Region 4, check out the Region 4 forum board and uh, for more information about that, check out our gear shop, hats, coins, uh, T-shirts, you name it. And last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only only to members and a huge amount of discounts, uh, including the one I just mentioned with Savecastle. I want to remind you guys about a new one because we haven't had anybody buy one of these things yet. And uh, I'd like to see some business for this guy because he's really a cool guy. And I know this is a product that you guys are going to be interested in. Uh, we just added um, Wilderness Solutions as a discount vendor for the Members Brigade. Now, Wilderness Solutions sells what's called a fire piston. I first learned about these on the Les Stroud Show, Survivor Man. What these, they look almost like a duck call, except they're really beautiful. The ones made in Coco Bolo are, uh, anyway. And they have a little plunger in them. You take a little piece of tinder, you put it on the plunger. You put the plunger into the piston, and you smack it with the back of your hand. This creates air compression. Ignites the tinder, you pull it out, drop it into a fire bundle, and you have fire anywhere at all times, and it never runs out. Pretty cool. Uh, when I realized that we those were available online, I contacted the owner and said, hey, I want you to do something for my members. So he's doing 10% off the top three models. So uh, that's in your MSB. Uh, being added today... Um, I don't know, it might be late today before I get it added for you guys, but um, a special deal from the Berkey guy and uh, with a uh, free Berkey Sport water bottle with no minimum order on any order, you get one of those in addition, and uh, you'll have to call him for that. And then the other one is Global Sun Ovens is doing a $50 discount, a $50 discount on the purchase of a Sun Oven. Uh, same Sun Oven I own, same Sun Oven you've seen in my videos, 50 bucks off on that. I'll get that code added in for you guys today. So that, that membership brigade just keeps getting more and more value in it. I'm really working hard to do that. Uh, we'll wrap up the housekeeping and the intro portion there. Let's go ahead and start taking some calls. I want to remind you guys, some of these calls are three, four months old. Some of them came in last week. I'm trying to mix that up, but I'm cleaning the backlog out. I need new calls. One piece of advice, I just went through a bunch of calls looking for ones to put on the air. If you fumble around for a minute and a half before you get to your question, odds are I'm going to get tired of waiting for your question and delete your call and go and find somebody else. Please get to your question. I'm not rushing you. I don't want to put pressure on you, but please get to your question. Make your point. Get to your question. If you want to put some filler in, that's fine. But I have to screen these calls, set up them in queue, get them ready to splice together. I've got to move quickly. And uh, I think some of you guys spend uh, your first 45 seconds to a minute and a half uh, explaining to me um, things that are not really germane to your point. It's very difficult for me to include that because it involves more editing. i got to take that out. And please do not give me information in a call and say, please take this information out of the call. Don't give any information in your calls you don't want to hear on the air. If I get that from you, I simply don't use your call. Um, so there's ways to make sure uh, that your call can get on the air and be handled expedited quickly. Uh, hopefully get in on the next call on Friday if you make a great question. Um, and uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the first question. Remember, if you want to be on the air, uh, the number to call and leave your message at is 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. First caller, let's take the question. Hi, Jack. This is Matt from Southgate, Michigan. I had a question about raising my own chickens. Um, I have a family of four and was wanting to know about the uh, how many eggs a, a typical hen would yield 
uh, how I figure that out, where to buy chickens and roosters and, and whatnot, um, where what to do with them in the in the winter time, uh, things of that nature. I also had a quick question about uh, inline water filtration, like underneath your sink. Uh, what happens in an emergency in the in the city water? Uh, they've declared that it's no longer safe to drink. Uh, would that kind of filter still work, or would I still need to water, uh, boil the water? Thanks. Hope to hear, hear from you soon. Well, that's a great question and pretty good way to slip in uh, two questions. That's what I'm talking about there. Quick, precise to the point, and we even asked two questions. Actually, probably three questions. We'll start out with the first two on chickens. Number one, how many ch- – actually, you had four questions in there. Those are great. Uh, <laughs> I, um well, I didn't plan that. What a great example of how to ask questions and be specific. Anyway, question number one is, how many eggs can we expect to get per hen uh, on an ongoing basis from an operation, a little backyard chicken operation? The answer is one egg every day or possibly one egg every other day, somewhere in between there. So I would factor it about... Um, one egg per chicken every day and a half across your whole flock. So let's say you had five birds. Um, I would uh, bet that you're going to get about seven eggs every two days to seven and you know seven to eight eggs uh, uh, off of those birds uh, throughout a week. All right. So if you want a dozen eggs, uh, you're looking at probably having about eight hens to be able to get a dozen eggs a week. In most instances, now if you get a really healthy flock and, and you get your chickens laying eggs every day, and some hens do produce an egg a day during the time of the year when they're laying heavily, um, then you will have a surplus. But the best way to do this, chickens aren't like uh, really difficult to introduce new chickens to a flock to. They don't have a big problem with that, except with roosters. Roosters, you kind of want to bring them up with the flock or get a rooster that's already going to be a good flock rooster. But in the city, you probably don't want roosters anyway. Um, you, you, you probably want just hens. You don't need roosters to have hens. Um, so you may want to just abstain from roosters. But bringing new hens into a flock is easy, especially bringing kind of younger hens, what you call pullets, like half-grown hens into a flock, no problem. So you want to start out small. You can always add some more birds. If you end up in a surplus situation, you have a couple options. One is give the surplus eggs to your family and friends, which they'll probably appreciate. Maybe you'll spread a little bit of preparedness. Um, the other one is, if you have dogs, eggs are about the perfect dog food. So free dog food with your surplus eggs. So that's uh, let's, that knocks out the first part of your question. You also wanted to know, where do you get chickens from? Well, you can buy uh, little peeps, you know, uh, baby peeps through the mail online. There's nothing wrong with that. They ship them right after they're born. They don't need food at first, so you have plenty of time uh, to get them home and, and get them fed and into a brooder. I don't recommend it for first-time chicken keepers. Um, I would say buy at least two to three extra birds uh, for what you plan. You're probably going to lose one or two of them and maybe more uh, if you do that. And then you're going to have a long life cycle up to eggs. The best thing you can do is look for people, um, small farmers, uh, small producers that are in your area. They'll often sell hens that are already laying or uh, come from a good line of layers that are, are just about old enough to start laying or maybe have just started laying. Um, talk to them. Make sure that you're not getting swindled. I've, I've heard of people buying, oh, this hen lays an egg a day, and they buy the hen, and it never laid an egg for the rest of their life. Uh, but if you do name you know business on a first-name basis, you're able to take it back. So I don't know the area that you live in, but I would start out with a simple internet search, maybe a yellow pages search, 
See if you can find a local farmer's market, talk to the people that sell there, uh, or go ahead and do business uh, with uh, mail order, but just understand you got a lot longer cycle bringing your chicks up from peeps, uh, and you know that always comes with the potential to lose some of them, and this is not a good time of year for peeps. It's, it's really, really cold outside. So let's go to your last question. What do you do with the winter? Chickens are pretty winter-hardy birds, man. They don't, they don't really have a lot of... Uh, problems dealing with some cold you need a good chicken coop with a closed door uh, that they can get into at night to protect them anyway from uh, predators and they can go into that coop during the day you want to face the coop so that it gets some sun in the winter time so you want it to face generally the best way to do that is face your chicken coop uh, to the south and what that means is since you're facing south, you'll get very limited sun during the summer because it's high overhead. Uh, but when the sun is low in the sky in the wintertime in the south, it'll get sun all day long as the sun takes a lower track. That'll help warm it up. Chickens actually produce quite a bit of warmth if you give them a nice, snug, good, solid chicken coop. Uh, in fact, one of the things you can do if you want to integrate chickens with your greenhouse is build a greenhouse, section off a piece of the greenhouse that the chicken coop actually goes into, but so the chickens can't get out of that. So they're like caged or meshed in to that area, and then they, they have their, their uh, typical chicken house on the outside attached to the greenhouse, and they'll actually help keep the greenhouse warm. And when they breathe, they produce CO2, which does despite being maligned as a toxin, is not. Plants need it to live, so your plants will grow better, and they produce a source of manure that's right there that can be composted. That generates heat for your greenhouse, and then you have fertilizer inside your greenhouse for your plants. Pretty cool, huh? So there's how to put that all together. And then your your last question, which kind of went off topic there of chickens, was water filtration. And what you said is if the city water uh, becomes contaminated, they say don't drink it, you have an inline water filter, well, can you drink it now or um, do you still have to boil it? That answer is it depends. And what it depends on is what kind of filter you have, what that filter is capable of filtering out, and what the problem with the city water is. In many instances, the answer would be it's not safe, and in some instances would be it is safe. If it's a biological problem, so we're talking about a, a virus or a bacteria in the water, most inline systems, reverse osmosis systems, will not filter out bacterium and viruses because they don't filter down to a level small enough to do that. Therefore, taking the chemicals that the city puts in the water out, uh, like a reverse osmosis will take the fluoride out of the water and things like that. But bacterium and, and viruses are as small as 0.02 microns, and most of those filters are not that small. That's why the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle is a good thing to have around because if you have bacteria or virus uh, problems with water, it filters filters down to 0.015 micron, so that would be the product to look to for that. Um, the other thing we need to understand is there are certain things that can happen to water with chemicals that boiling won't remove. It will actually increase um, the, uh, the density. So if we have a chemical uh, problem, and it's a chemical that doesn't easily boil off, for instance, alcohol, if with alcohol, you put alcohol in water, and we bring out water to boiling point for five minutes, there will be no more alcohol in the water. So that's why I say if, you want to, if you're not a drinker and somebody says cook with beer, do it anyway, there's no alcohol because alcohol is volatile and boils off. But if we have a dense uh, damaging chemical and we, uh, we boil, 
like fluoride, which is already there, for instance, if you boil water for five minutes, a certain amount of water escapes the steam, you'd have a higher concentration of fluoride or, let's say, salt or other things that could be there left in the water. So it depends on what it is. So you have to talk to the manufacturer of your filter. Um, what does it filter out? And uh, what's, the, what's the chemical threat or the biological threat to the city water? My other concern would be how fresh is your water filter i mean they all come with these filters that can be inserted so that's one thing you really have to think about is just because it does filter this out um what if that filter is very near needing to have its cartridge replaced i don't know if i would find it as reliable you would think that it would clog up and if it would do anything it would do a better filtration job but i sure wouldn't i sure wouldn't uh, uh bet the farm on it so um it's something that i say depending on what kind of filter you have again um some filters do do different things than others so you got to go back to your manufacturer and say what does this and does this not filter out and what are the consequences of not uh performing maintenance uh at a regular schedule and they're probably going to tell you that they're not good and perform maintenance at regular schedules because they want to sell you components uh but they're also probably right about that so the great questions let's go ahead and take another call hey jack thank you for all that you do i have a question um today um, I'm interested in getting a book for my um, bug out bag. I need a survival book, and I was hoping that you could um, point me in the right direction on, on what kind of book I should, or if you know of a really good uh, survival book to um, include in my bug out bag. Thank you. Really good question, and um, if you're wanted for your bug out bag, then you're looking for maybe a different type of book on uh, survivalism than uh a lot of the books that are out there. A lot of the books that are out there are on prepping or on homesteading or on the things you can do to prepare for disaster. Um, once you're into a situation where you're utilizing your bug out bag, that means that you've kind of gotten to a point where you, your prepping has either worked or hasn't worked, but now you're in a situation you have to deal with. So you need a book that's more of an action book. What do I do when I'm stuck here and I'm in danger of freezing to death? What are ways that I can procure meat in this particular situation? And the issue with disasters is we don't know where they're going to happen. Is this going to be in the wilderness or is this going to be in the middle of a city? It could be either place. And while there's a lot of overlap, there are some things that are specific. So it's why I'm a huge fan of a book by Tom Brown that's actually two of his books compressed into one book. And they're not even compressed because they're, they're this full-size books, but it's basically a version of the book with the two books together. And it's called Tom Brown's Guide to City and Suburban Survival. Um, and it sells for, I think, paperback about 10 bucks on Amazon. I have the hardback version because uh, I found it at half-price books. Um, but the softback's probably better for a... Uh, a bug out bag anyway because it kind of fits in there and it can bend a little bit and give a little bit so that's probably one of the very best books I could recommend for a bug out bag because it covers both worlds it covers both areas it's it's the uh it, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you end up trugging through the wilderness or uh, using an old abandoned house for a couple days due to what situation you're in. It's got the answers for you, and it's very well written. The stuff that's in it is effective. I don't agree 100% with all of his takes on everything, but I don't think anybody does that with any other human being on the planet. Two human beings are always going to have disagreements, but it's stuff that will keep you alive, and I'm a big fan of that book, and uh, it is the book that I keep in my bug out bag. Um, a smaller, more compact book that's going to be 
useful, but it's going to also be more of a book that, even though there's going to be some of the similar things that are in there, but it's going to be more like, you know, how to actually get help from people, uh, a little bit more reliance on the government because of the type of guy that wrote it, but he's a good, solid guy, and his name is David Black, and the book is called What to Do When the Shit Hits the Fan, and it's a nice little, small book. That book is available also from Amazon on the Kindle edition. Um, the Tom Brown book is not, probably because it's an older book. Um, so I, the one thing I really like about um, the What to Do When the Shit Hit the Fan book is you can get that on your Kindle. So even though I have a copy of the book, I've ordered a copy of it to my Kindle, so I have an electronic version. And folks, let me put a little word here, for a word of advice and warning about the Kindle. The Kindle is a great device for reading books that are mostly textual in nature. If you got a book with illustrations and charts, uh, the current couple versions of the Kindle I'm not real happy with, even the bigger one. I have a smaller one, obviously smaller screen, pictures are going to suffer a little bit, um, but even a buddy of mine has the bigger one, I'm not real happy with the pictures, uh, I think it'll be the next generation that'll be a little bit better. So. If you're going to use a Kindle, look at buying books that are mostly textual. This book is, so no problem there. Um, the other thing about the Kindle, though, is it is a wonderful and evil device. It is wonderful because I can get books for half price, basically, in some situations, at least 25% off. Um, <clears throat> it has free wireless, um, so I can be on my Kindle, go to the store, buy a book immediately. Uh, in 30 seconds, it's on my Kindle. Uh, I could be anywhere that there's a signal from it, because Verizon Wireless is the back end of it. Uh, anywhere Verizon Wireless has a signal, I can buy a book and have it in 30 seconds uh, for less than buying the actual copy. It's thin, it's light. The, the fully charged thing lasts for like a week before you have to charge again. So it's a great charge life, very, very low draw to charge up, so any kind of little small solar backup system would charge it. Here's the evil part. I've bought so many more books since I got the Dadgone thing. It makes it too easy to buy books. Um, another thing you iPhone users might want to know, there is a Kindle application for the iPhone, where basically you can shop in the Kindle store using your iPhone uh, to store all your books. You keep them in your Amazon account. If you want to clear some space on your iPhone, you can pull them off the phone. They're still in your account. You can call them back down wirelessly anytime you want. So... I went outside the question, but I just when I noticed that the Tom or the uh, the David Black book was on the Kindle, I wanted to point that guys out to you because I've got a lot of questions about the Kindle. So there's my theory on the Kindle. Uh, there's my two favorite books for bug out bags. If you said David Black or Tom Brown, which one for the bug out bag? You can only have one. Uh, Tom Brown. Uh, more useful, more actionable items in the field. David Black's book is good, but it, it's more about, hey, this is who you call. There are things you can do in it. It's not completely, it's just not to the level of Tom Brown's. I'll put it to you that way. So, favorite of the two, Brown's. I own both. You should probably, too, at some point. Uh, great question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Been a long-time listener uh, since just about since you started. But uh, i got a quick question for you. A uh, buddy of mine and I are sitting down and talking, and he wants to get a pair of guns, one for uh, daily carry. He's going to be getting his permit, kind of following in my footsteps. And he's pretty much settled on a 1911 platform. I'm pretty happy with that uh, as a suitable carry fire on the commander link. But he wanted to get another one for home defense. And I'm thinking more along the lines like you do with a, a shotgun, and I'm trying to maybe... Uh, turn his opinion from getting uh, two identical firearms, one for home defense and one for, for daily carry, to, to maybe a shotgun and a pistol. Um, <clears throat> if you can kind of hit me with some opinions on that, or, or if uh, 
you can give me a, a little bit of advice in terms of how to uh, argue the point with him, uh, I'd appreciate it. But again, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and uh, keep on with the kick-ass show. Thanks. And this is Brian, by the way. Good question, and I concur with your advice overall. Let's look at the uh, first thing, a 1911 commander-length um, pistol for a everyday carry. I love it. I know there's a lot of people that are big fans of the higher-capacity weapons, like the Berettas and the Glocks and even some of the better-made Tauruses and the Springfields and everything like that. I believe that in the uh, 1911 frame with the uh, 45 uh, ACP, we have a cartridge and a weapon absolutely 100% made for each other with a history of, of 100 years almost um, of proven reliability. We have a round that is extremely lethal um, and the capacity is more than sufficient for what a person would generally need. I also believe that while a lot of people think a 45 is difficult to shoot, when you're properly trained, the 1911 is one of the actually the easiest handguns to consistently shoot well due to its just immaculate and wonderful design. So I applaud your friend for his choice, especially a first gun. Um, to make that choice is admirable because there's so much pressure for, you know, the, the Glock 19 and, and, and things like that. So great choice. Now, on the second part, your advice, um, why the hell would you do such a thing? Let me say that again. Why the hell would you do such a thing? Are, do, you, do you plan when you get home to take your everyday carry gun and lock it in a safe and then maybe have your home defense gun in a different location? I, I don't understand the justification for that, especially at a point where you're only going to have two weapons in your life. Um, and here's the reality. I, I talked about this on John Lipscomb's show the other night. And, uh, in a side here, I did Big John Lipscomb's show uh, Wednesday night. If you're on the email list, you got an alert about that. If not, I'll, I'll link to the archive of it today. It was a good show. But I, I said the same thing there when he asked me about handguns. Handguns are made so that you can be armed when carrying a long gun is not appropriate or possible. That is why they exist period. They also exist so that they can be concealed, but that is also about carrying a handgun when you can't carry a rifle because you can't conceal. So it all comes down to, if I could have a rifle or a shotgun, I'd be better off in any situation than with a handgun, unless I guess I'm trying to assassinate somebody. Alright, and I want to sneak up on them, or what have you. So why why is that the case? Well, James Jaeger, I think, feels a little more strongly about this than I do. James says that um, when we shoot people with handguns, they send, tend to say, ow, and run away, and, and most handgun wounds are not lethal. I say that a forty five or a three fifty seven Magnum in the chest is generally pretty lethal. I think most handgun wounds that are not lethal are not lethal because of where the rounds landed, not because of the rounds in effectiveness. Unless we then we start factoring in things like how many people are shot with twenty five automatics. If we take things like that out, these little you know, little twenty five cap guns, uh, which can kill but often don't. 
Um, let's let's face it, it's a pretty underpowered little little weapon. Uh, so we take those out of the equation. We look at things like from nine millimeter, thirty eight special, three fifty seven magnum, forty Smith and Wesson. These are very very lethal rounds. But they but he's right in that they are not as effectively lethal, and they are not the fight stopper that a shotgun or a rifle is. In other words, even though the, the person wounded may die, they still will be more likely to return fire, where if you hit them in the chest with a 20-gauge shotgun slug, game over. It's pretty much the end right there. Same with something like number three or number four, or even going up to number two buck. Uh, any of those are fight stoppers. So I am in complete agreement with the shotgun for several reasons. One, you get your concealed carry permit. You're carrying your pistol. All right, You come home. Don't put your pistol away. Carry it in your home. Carry it right up until you go to bed. Until you strip down to your boxers and watch TV, I guess, anyway. As long as you're clothed, keep your gun on you. It's the safest way to store a gun in a home with children in it. Kids can't get into daddy's gun if it's strapped to his belt. So the forty-five should be with you, except when you're asleep, and then it should be close by anyway, all the time, because it's your carry weapon. So why have a second one stored somewhere? Okay. Number two, now you're at home and somebody breaks into your house or we have a civil defense situation or something like that. A shotgun is a deterrent. And I don't care what the bravado people say, nobody's going to get scared of a shotgun and fall over. They're right. They're not going to fall over. They're sure it's all going to get scared of a I'm scared of a shotgun if it's pointed at me. And you are too, and so is anybody else, especially a bad guy coming into your home. There is an intimidation factor. There, and the, the intimidation factor is there because it's effective. Now, it's not point in the general direction and you'll hit them. Not since you need to learn to use it well. But it's a very effective weapon. And it brings flexibility and effectiveness that a handgun never will. That in a survival situation with some, some birdshot, we can go out and we can feed ourselves with it. With some slugs, we can defend ourselves, or we can harvest deer with it. Stuff that a handgun will never do. So I would go to a shotgun as my second gun if I were if I were this individual. And I really don't even get the concept of having two identical pistols and saying one's for carry and one's for home defense. That just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not picking on the guy. It just doesn't add up. Right. In fact, I have very few where I have the same gun. And if I do, it's for redundancy of parts. Right, so uh, or redundancy of accessories, so that if I have match a match pair of, uh, I don't even need a match pair. I have two uh, standard uh, 1911s. One could be you know one brand and one could be another. The magazines are interchangeable. The ammo is interchangeable. I get that as you kind of build out you know um, a collection of guns. You might have to arm other members of the family, something like that. But you're getting started. Two of the same gun. Doesn't it make sense to me? I think it's a waste of money. It's a waste of resources. And here's what I'm going to tell you. That 1911 is a fairly expensive weapon. Good, solid shotgun, right? Uh, pump action, 870, Mossberg 500, any of those, you know, the Winchesters, any of them are good, solid weapons. 250 bucks. Take the difference in the money and buying the second uh, 1911. Buy some ammo for the 1911, buy some shotgun ammo, uh, buckshot and birdshot, and maybe some slugs for the shotgun. You'll still have some money left over, probably about 200 bucks. Take the 200 bucks and go get some training. Spend the money on training if you're going to, beyond the training you have to take for your concealed carry permit, go get some training with the shotgun or the handgun beyond your state's requirements. And I think that would be a much better investment of that money for a new shooter. Because now I have, 
two weapons, more flexibility, a supply of ammunition, which the gun is worthless with the ammunition, and training on how to use them. So that would be my approach. I think you're giving your friend good advice. I hope this helps you. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. My name is Carson. I'm from northern Alberta. If you've heard about the oil sands, um, that's where I'm from. Uh, I have a question uh, about permaculture type stuff. Um, for, I believe we're zone one here is what my wife was seeing on the computer. And we're looking at, uh, at getting a house on like an acre of land. And I was just wondering uh, if you had any suggestions for things I might want to look for uh, in the land in this area with regards to setting up permaculture and anything else that, uh, that you might have that way. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Hope you're having a great day. Bye. All right, hey, uh, great question, and let's be honest, it's uh, pretty cold up there, right? But let's also look at, I don't think you're actually zone one, uh, not that it should make you feel a whole lot warmer, but um, depends on where you're at in Alberta. There's certainly parts of Alberta that are zone one if you get up into northern Alberta, and maybe that's where you are, and there's parts of uh, Alberta that are, believe it or not, zone zero, uh, way up at the... Uh, the top of the world almost. But if you're in like Calgary, Lethbridge, Edmonton, in that area, you're probably zone three. Uh, in between them, you might, with some of the mountains and the microclimates, be a zone two. Um, and I guess you could even be zone one uh, near uh, Banff and that area. So it depends on what part of Alberta you're in. But it's, it's, it's blisteringly cold, uh, so to speak. Uh, in a lot of the states. So a lot of the things that we do talk about doing with permaculture just out in the open are not that doable in a place like that. I'll, I'll be honest with you about that with the snow and everything. And then you also have very short days in the wintertime in a lot, depending on how far north you are, um, you almost get into that, you know, six months of darkness type thing in, in the far north. So it depends on where you are. So no matter where you are, my first advice is invest in building a really badass greenhouse. And even consider bringing in some secondary heat sources, doing the thing with maybe some chickens, like I talked about earlier, where maybe you have to do a really large greenhouse and a significant section is dedicated to a significant flock of chickens providing uh, meat and eggs. And uh, quite a bit of compost going on from that activity as well, and general composting activity to help provide uh, residual heat in the greenhouse. But you might also even look at doing something like, at least overnight uh, during the coldest parts of the year, inside the greenhouse using a small wood stove. Um, absolutely no reason not to do that. Plenty of people do. And it doesn't even necessarily have to burn all night long because the metal from a good little cast iron stove, if you you know stoke it up with a decent little fire every night, even if it goes out halfway through the night, you're going to have a lot of residual heat off that stove to help keep a greenhouse warm between the solar radiation that's left over, uh, the overall greenhouse effect and the heat from that. So I would look at greenhouse. I would also possibly consider, if you have the space, building a really large greenhouse and going with an aquaponics operation. I've talked to Bill Mollison about this, and he tells me I'm correct in that you put a large volume of water in a greenhouse, uh, you get better heat retention because the water retains heat better than the air, uh, which is pretty similar to my little experiment last year. I just took... Uh, 
two cheap black trash cans and put them in my greenhouse, filled them with water, and uh, even on nights where the temperature was in the 20s, the water temperature remained in the 60s in those uh, those barrels, even first thing in the morning when I went out and checked the temperature in them, and that was helping to maintain heat in the greenhouse. So I would look at going with a sustainable greenhouse model, uh, maybe adding some things to it to make it more permaculture-like, such as rain catch. So you build a greenhouse, build rain catch, run the rain to uh, a, a, a tank that's elevated to the highest point you can uh, inside the greenhouse. Now you have water inside the greenhouse, again, retaining more heat, and then you have natural irrigation that you can, uh, you could even go with drip tubing, run it to that tank, and just have a simple manual knob and watering your plants in your greenhouse since everything's organized could be going in there and turning that knob or setting up a little electric timer, maybe something on solar if you can't run power out there. So I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you're that far north, if you're in Alaska, you're in British Columbia, you're in Alberta, and you're not near the few temperate climates there, where you, there's some Zone 5 in Alberta, right? There's some Zone 5 in, uh, in uh, British Columbia. I think there's some Zone 6 in British Columbia. So there are temperate climates there that are a little bit easier to deal with, but if you're in those zone one, two, three areas, you, you need a greenhouse. And I actually think that everybody in North America that has the capability should have a greenhouse. I'm in Texas. Well, zone eight. And uh, except for the fact that a uh, major uh, storm destroyed my greenhouse and I decided not to put another one in because we're going to be moving, um, I had a greenhouse here. Uh, and I'll tell you a little trick. I don't know how good this will work for you guys there where you're at, but, but it might work in, let's say, the few times of the year where it's pretty decent outside and you're just starting to get into frost. Um, I have a couple fish tanks laying around, and I have some gar- uh, lettuce in the garden. We had this seven-degree weather coming uh, a couple weeks ago. And I started thinking, you know, come on, dummy, just take those things, turn them upside down over top of your lettuce plant. So put a couple of them out in the garden, and the, the few plants that were exposed uh, that I didn't have enough, I have just two of these tanks and I don't have much of the ground right now, um, survived right through it, no problems whatsoever. And uh, the other ones couldn't ha- handle it, even being lettuce and, and being very cold tolerant. Seven degrees was just too low for them, and uh, pretty much lost everything except the stuff underneath the fish tanks. And I got to thinking that... Um, if you want to grow through the winter and you want a real simple way to do that, and this is not really for our buddy up there in, in uh, Alberta, right? This is not sufficient to handle this for you, but it's making me think of this for people that are maybe in five, six, seven, eight these other zones. Just during your cold nights, you could go to Walmart and you buy a 10 gallon fish tank for about seven bucks. You buy four or five of those, keep them in your garden shed. And uh, whenever you're going to have some freezing temperatures, or even through the cooler parts of the year, setting them over lettuce plants. And a 10-gallon tank probably can hold about three to four nice lettuce plants. You could actually have little mini greenhouse effects, very, very uh, well uh, uh, taken care of plants, uh, very simple, easy to set up and take away. If it's going to be hot during the day, you don't have to bring them in. You could just move them off of your plants. So it's a great little way to extend the season or protect your seeds early without putting row covers on, especially for the small gardener. So I just thought I'd bring that up. And, of course, you could do a cheaper version, get some clear film, build a wood frame, and uh, put the, the film on it. But, hey, man, the fish tank idea is worth great for me. And, and you might be able to just start looking at swap meets and things like that and uh, pick up some cheap stuff like that. Because even if there's a little crack in it or it won't hold water anymore doesn't really matter for the purpose that you have for it. So thought I'd throw that in there at the end. A great question. Sorry I can't tell you. You could just have a permaculture utopia in Zone 1. There are places where it's really hard to grow things, but there are some things you can grow. 
um, like cranberries and lignanberries and things like that. But uh, I'd say get the Rain Tree catalog and see what you can what you can uh, help uh, get by up there. Maybe I don't no, I don't even think you can pull Arctic Kiwi off if it's zone one. Uh, but be sure of what your zone is because uh, there's a lot of three in Alberta. There's a lot of three, so um, up to you. But there you go. Best I can do with that one. Sorry, I can't do better for you on it. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Carson from Canada again. I had a comment that I remembered that I wanted to make. It has to do with spreading liberty around the world and the use of the military to do it. Yeah, I know I'm from Canada. However, I love the United States Constitution. I love the system of government that the Founding Fathers set up. They were brilliant men. They did an excellent job of setting up a great system. And it's since been screwed up by idiots that don't know what sacrifice means. My comment about spreading liberty around the world using the military, though, is that it's not going to stick if you try and force it on people. People, if they're going to get liberty, need to do the same thing that the Founding Fathers and other revolutionary war men did. They need to fight for it themselves, because if they don't fight for it, they're not going to appreciate it, and they're going to lose it quickly. I think that is one of the problems that we are facing now, is that there haven't been people that have really fought for our liberty for a long time. And so people have forgotten how important it is, and the sacrifice that it takes to get it, and so they take it for granted and we're losing it because of that. So people, wake up, pull your head out of the sand. We're humans, not ostriches. And pay attention to the world around you. Otherwise, you're going to lose what you've got. And then you're going to be mom the fact. And then we will have to fight and give ourselves to get it back. All right. Have a great one, Jack. Bye. You know... That's a great point. I never let anybody have two questions or comments in one show, but I did it with Carson there, and I think after hearing it, maybe you could see why. You know what it makes me think about? It makes me think back to the foundation of our nation and what I call the Second American Revolution. Um, Second American Revolution, I guess, is a phrase people are throwing around now about tea parties and 912 projects and stuff like that, and I don't mean any disrespect or anything, but to me, the first revolution was obviously the, the American Revolution. The Second American Revolution was the War of 1812, where Britain looked over here and went, do over, we changed our mind, we want it back. And they came and tried to take it back, we had to fight the same war for independence a second time. And it didn't go on as long, obviously, but it was the same thing at stake. The nation itself, while it was still an infant. Do you know what our president of the time, James Madison, did during the War of 1812 when Washington was being invaded? got on his horse and he rode throughout the city checking on soldiers, checking on civilians, and being seen by the population during an orderly withdrawal from the city as the fight was considered you know, lost and they had to move back, regroup, and fight another way. But he didn't leave until the last moment where it had to be done. Can you see any of our modern presidents doing that in this country? You see Barack Obama riding through the city of Washington, even in a car, let alone a horse, in the middle of an invasion, a true invasion, where bombs are going off and gunshots are going off. Can you see him being there? And to be fair, do you think Bush would have done it? Either of them? Clinton? I don't know about Reagan. Who knows? But I doubt it. Carter? Come on. Ford, Nixon, please. Eisenhower probably would have. Eisenhower probably would have stood in the middle of the fray 
And if we want to go back to somebody before that that would have done it, Roosevelt, not Franklin, but Teddy, but he would have probably done it for a photo op. And then from there back, Grant, Jackson, back to, back to Madison. There's not been many men that ever ran this country that would have done that. How many of our congressmen and senators do you think wouldn't hide their overstuffed fat asses right now if Washington was being invaded externally or internally? You know? How many would stand for the nation the way that Madison did during the War of 1812? Very few. Why? Madison saw the fight. It's exactly what Carson's saying. Madison was part of the fight. Some of this democracy building that, our, that we think we're doing throughout the world, I really hope it sticks. Because to me, when you give people something that they don't fight for, well, you know what? When you do that, it's like giving a kid a brand new car when he turns 16. He doesn't really appreciate it or understand it. I have hope in Iraq, because they see the people there fighting alongside of us. I have some hope for Afghanistan, but that was the one that really, really scares me. Um, that a lot of what we've lost there will end up being for nothing, because we've just gone in there and thrust that upon people. This nation is supposed to be an example, and we're supposed to set, set, spread liberty by example. If you read the, the, the documents written by our founders, not just the Declaration and the Constitution, but all of the documents, the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers, and the letters that they wrote to each other, and all of these things that are available, uh, you can just look up online and read. You'll see what was in their hearts and their minds and souls. And what they really wanted was... They wanted our nation to have commerce with all other nations and alliances with none. They didn't want us in entangling alliances. They wanted us to be a hell of a lot more like Switzerland is today than we are today. And um, I think Switzerland is a pretty good example of a lot of things. Not of everything, but no nation's going to be no nation is going to get everything right. But folks, listen to Carson. Those are words of wisdom. And, again, buddy, I'm glad you love the Constitution, because it's not just my Constitution. Even though you're a Canadian, it's your Constitution, too. It's your Declaration, too. At least the parts that say that you have inalienable rights to come from a creator. That's how it was written. That's how it was meant. Uh, let's take another call. Very, very good stuff there, Carson. Hi, Jack. This is Mike from Phoenix calling. I like your show. A couple things I want to mention. Haiti would be a great thing to talk about disasters and uh, lack of preparation in this country. like to see a little few comments on Jeffersonian ideals and the Constitution, and I would really like to see you talk about the three Navy SEALs being charged with uh, brutality against a uh, alleged terrorist, Ahmed Hashim Abed, and uh, that's just a travesty, and there is a donation that can be made to the First Western Trust Bank in uh, Greenwood Village. Thank you, and have a nice day. Let's start out with the first one on Haiti. Um, yeah, I haven't really talked about it a lot on the air because I've had shows kind of preset and didn't have current events coming into them. I'm going to talk about Haiti more on Monday, so I'll be brief with it today. Um, I want to let you know we've actually had a few people that listen to the show uh, email me, one from Jacksonville, Florida, uh, another one from Georgia, uh, one was a paramedic, one was a firefighter. Both are going to Haiti, Haiti as part of the relief effort. guy from Jacksonville, uh, he said his group will be basically living out of their, their bug-out bags for a week. Uh, they'll have no support where they're going, and they're a little bit intimidated, but they want to help. So this nation, again, and 
many nations, even the Chinese are stepping up to help Haiti. So it's good to see once in a while our global community actually help each other out. So we need to acknowledge that when it happens. And we need to acknowledge that this country is usually the one that's at the front line and the first to respond and the one that does the most in most situations. We, we need a little bit of credit for that from the rest of the world. I get tired of hearing about America's arrogance uh, once in a while. There's some points where it's, it's a well-made point, but on the other side of it, there's very few nations that do as much as this nation does to try to help, uh, especially during disaster situations. Um, what can we learn about preparedness for, from it? That just when you think nothing can go wrong, everything can go wrong. And I've seen a lot of chatter on the internet and already, some from the prepper community that disturbs me about Haiti, about how, look how these people are so unprepared. Folks, if we have that earthquake, don't, it's almost like, like, well, they're just Haitians or something. It's not said that way, but I get that vibe, and I don't like it, and there's no place for it. Because if that earthquake happens right now, in most U.S. cities, the results will be almost the same. Now, we have better construction, so that's about the only difference. But if we get an earthquake in a place where we don't generally get earthquakes and we don't build our buildings for earthquakes, let's say we got a really big earthquake for some reason in Atlanta, Georgia, or Dallas, Texas. The, the, the damage would be just as bad and the people are just as unprepared. In fact, I bet that some of the people in Haiti are a hell of a lot better prepared than a lot of people in the United States. But a disaster of that scale can strike us all. So what we learn from that, this is the big thing. I heard a news report with President Bill Clinton. He said what these people need right now are medical supplies, food, and water, and comfort supplies. That's the four things they need. They need blankets and pillows and things like that and clothing to be comfortable. They need water to drink that's clean. They need food to eat so they can survive. And they need medical supplies to treat their injuries. Those are the main things that you need in your preparedness plan. It's universal it's universal. It's universal. I can't be any more blunt with you. No matter what you want to do with prepping, no matter how many different interesting topics that we have here, it always comes down. Can you clothe and shelter yourself? Can you feed yourself? Can you provide yourself water? And can you treat your own injuries to the best of your ability? Those are the things you have to cover. That's what we learned from Haiti. Let's take the next part of uh, uh, this call. So Jeffersonian ideals. I guess I could do a whole show one day on Jefferson. Maybe I should. I think he's one of the greatest men that um, did ever lay pen to paper and one of the greatest men that's ever acted as a leader to this nation and one of the greatest visionaries in our history. Um, the big thing with Jefferson and why I have so much admiration for him is he was so big on limiting government. So you'd think the greatest politician that I could think of would be somebody that did wonderful things with government. What Jefferson said is we need government out of the way. And while a lot of politicians play lip service to that crap today, Jefferson meant it. And he actually put things in place, you know, not the least of which were his contributions to the Declaration and the Constitution, that actually did it. I mean, that's, that's remarkable in of itself that, 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 that he, along with many of our under, other founders, actually placed limitations upon government. Looking at what I said about Madison and, you know, which modern politician can you see riding through the streets of Washington, D.C., let's not expect a horse today, but in a Jeep or a Humvee, uh, during an active invasion. Which modern politician anywhere today has ever actually tried to limit government in any way, shape, or form? 
a few have talked about it and even proposed some things. There's some people that are big, you know, fond of term limits. They never even get to come up for a vote, though. Tell me one action the government has taken in the past 25 years that placed a limit on government instead of people. One. That's what we've lost. A government that will limit itself. That's what Jefferson was all about. One day we'll do a whole show on him. But that's a big thing. And I talked about Jeffersonian ideals all the time throughout the show. I've done it already earlier today. When I start talking about staying out of entangling alliances, which I just did a few minutes ago, that's very, very Jeffersonian. Well, let's take the uh, the last part of that uh, that question there. Yeah, for those of you who haven't heard this, I've actually mentioned this before on the air. It's a, it's a little bit older of a story now, but the saga continues, of course. Um, there's three Navy SEALs that, that apprehended this, this sleazebag that was behind... Um, we had some of our men killed. Uh, I believe it was in Fallujah. If I'm wrong about the location, I'm sorry. This is a while ago, and I haven't thought about it, unfortunately, for a while. But when these people were killed, they were strung up and hung from a bridge that went across the Euphrates. This maggot that these three SEALs apprehended... Um, was the mastermind behind that. He was the instigator uh, behind having these people strung up. And he's, a, he's just, this guy's just a sleazeball terrorist. Uh, this guy's killed more Muslims than he, uh, more Iraqi Muslims than he has American soldiers. Um, he is an enemy to both nations. He is an enemy to humanity. He is a piece of shit. If you don't like me cussing, I'm sorry. That's what the man is. He's a piece of shit. And the best thing that could have been done with him is a bullet in his head. But the SEALs that were sent to apprehend him understood that he might have intelligence value, and they did their duty, and they brought him home. Apparently, during the apprehension, he was punched in the mouth, and he had a bloody lip to prove it. I don't give a shit. Now, what he said is he had been abused by his apprehenders, uh, not asking, not you know, offering any resistance. Um, it appears that the command immediately sided with the terrorist... Because they're stupid, and because they're afraid of things like Abu Ghraib, which was not torture, it was wrong, it was abuse, but making a guy wear panties on his head is not torture. Because of that fear, they sided with the terrorists, even though the terrorists' own documents, their training manuals that we're getting now, says the first thing you do, once you're turned over from whoever captured you to the next level, is claim abuse. That's their standard operating procedure. Well, they said to the SEALs, okay, you guys will just stand captain's mast for this. So those that don't know what captain's mast is, captain's mast in the Army, we would call that an Article 15. Uh, it means that you're only going so far up the chain of command. A captain uh, in, the, in the Army for an Article 15 would be generally what you would deal with at what's called a company-level Article 15. I think that's this. I actually think they were asked to stand admiral's mast. Which means they could get in, uh, they could have their, they could lose their careers in front of an admiral. Uh, I think that's how the Navy works. If I'm wrong, guys, you can straighten me out. But it was a pretty heavy uh, possibility of what could happen. But generally, when it's handled by command in these types of situations, there's a reprimand. Maybe there's a reduction in rank. A lot of times, the reduction in rank is suspended. So if you're an E7, you're reduced to an E6, but not really. Uh, maybe you get you lose a month's pay, and they take it out over six months or something like that. So uh, it's usually somewhat of a slap on the wrist, but it can be very severe. But it's not being criminally charged uh, like you would be during an article or a, um, a court martial proceedings. Well, when you get 
asked to face UCMJ, or Uniform Code of Military Justice, within the command structure, you have three choices. One, admit guilt and take your punishment and plead for leniency. Two, plead your case and know that you're already found guilty because they won't bring you in front of their desk unless you're guilty. So the only thing you're doing then is pleading for lenience by saying, I didn't do it, right? Or three, turn it down and say, if you want to prosecute me, do it in a courtroom, and that results in a court-martial. So these three SEALs are now going to court-martial where they could face losing their entire military careers because one terrorist got punched in the lip and supposedly in the stomach. Now, if they abuse the guy, hey, you know, we're not supposed to abuse our prisoners. But I don't see punching a guy in the face during an apprehension is being abused. And I would side with the three Navy SEALs story before I'd side with him. you got to realize, they didn't bring this guy in black and blue, head to toe. He had a bloody lip and he said his stomach hurt. It's a pile of crap. There's an article about it on my buddy Brian's blog at ITS Tactical. I'll link to that today. You can find out more about it. But I'm disgusted with it. Uh, financially supporting their defense fund, I'm all for that. I ask you guys to think about doing that today using the resource that was cited. And uh, if I can find it online, uh, I'll link to it as well for you guys. Uh, but this is a tragedy. This is an absolute tragedy. And... Uh, don't confuse. Those of you who are very libertarian-minded and think that we should have a no-force doctrine and we shouldn't be in these nations in the first place, don't confuse the fact that you don't think we should be there with the men that are sent there have a job to do and they do their job well and we need to support them because they do what they're asked to do. And what they did here was bring a piece of shit to justice. No matter what your feelings on the war are, no one can make a case to defend this guy. This guy is slime. And I don't care that he has a bloody lip. And I'll tell you what, if these men end up thrown out of our military, it's a very dangerous uh, thing that we're setting a precedent for. And I'm really appalled by it. I'm completely appalled by it. And this is one of those things, you know, I say write your congressman, write your senator. I would write your congressman and your senator about this today, folks. I've already done it. And just say, if there's anything that our, that our legislature can do to help these people, let's make sure we do it, either before or after this goes down. But I'm not happy about it at all. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. Today I have a question for you about solar energy. Let me preface this question by stating that I do not consider myself paranoid or much of a conspiracy guy. That being said, here we go. Most of the people I know that are interested in installing a solar system for their house seem to be motivated by one thing, and that is the rebate or the government kickback. My personal desire for installing such a system is motivated by the idea of preparedness and self-sufficiency. And the idea of accepting assistance from the government to get it done is not very appealing to me for the following reason. It seems to me that any time you allow the government to be involved with what you're doing, especially with regards to some form of independence, you're ultimately asking for it, if you will. With a new smart grid on the way, I can just see the government saying things like, you're using too much energy and not producing enough to put back into the grid, and so on. So in your opinion, would it be better to go gorilla with your system and install it independently, or accept a rebate? in exchange for possible government intrusion? And is this way of thinking maybe just a little bit out there? Uh, thank you very much for your time and your consideration. Bye-bye. Let me say, I I'm never really for taking government's money. Uh, I think taking the government's money is a bad deal. 
But we have to define what the government's money is. The government's money is the people's money. Right? So, to me, I'm taking the government's money when the government takes your money and makes it available to me. That's taking the government's money. The government took it from you. It's really your money, but let's let's be honest. Once they take it, it becomes theirs, and now they redistribute it to me through some type of a social program or what have you. Uh, there's a great quote. I can't remember who made it, but it is, the government can give away nothing that has not first stolen from somebody else or something like that. I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, so that comes up here. But let's look at the solar incentives and say, is that taking government money? It is not taking government money. Not under that definition. And I'm not splitting hairs here. This is an important thing that we need to understand. If you install the solar system, sent the United States government a form, and they mailed you a check, that would be taking the government's money. Because it would come out of their a bucket that they had set aside to do this with, and it would be redistributed to you. You performed good little lap dog. Let me pet you on the head, and I'll give you some of the public coffer money. All right, and that money damn well can come with um, some sort of down the road consequence. And I'm not saying it could never happen with solar panels on your roof to you use the subsidy for, um, but it would be difficult. And if you don't really want to take any subsidy, stop eating most of the food in your supermarket, because if it's grown in America, most of the food in the supermarket uh, comes with some sort of a farm subsidy that's being redistributed to you. All right, so we have to think beyond when we start thinking about subsidies that work this way. But here's the real defining difference for me, why I, I say get every penny you can, because it's not somebody else's money, it's your money. How do you get this money? How do I get the rebate of 20% of $2,000 for the solar panels I put on my roof. If I buy a $1,000 um, energy smart refrigerator and I get $200 back, how do I get it? They don't send me a check. When I file my taxes, I get to use it as a deduction straight off. So it is reducing my taxation. It's keeping from giving them my money. It's not having them send me money. That's a totally different flow of cash. And I'm for every single legal deduction you can take, every single one, in eliminating any tax and any portion of any tax you can legally reduce. Period. End of story. So when I put solar systems in or I put in an energy smart appliance or I do insulation or whatever, you bet I'm taking the deduction. Because to me, I see that deduction no differently than when I buy a piece of software to use for the show, and I expense it. And then I say to the government, this is came off of my profit. This is an expense. I really don't see it any differently than that. It is my money that I am choosing not to give them so that I can give it to somebody else, versus they've taken your money and they're sending it to me in the form of a subsidy check. Right? When you put these things in, they don't send you a check. They are a deduction from your income tax. That's why I see them as totally different, and that's why I would not hesitate to use them. I do share your concern a little bit someday that they could come by and say, well, if you have solar panels, uh, you know, there's some public, it could be something there. I'll fight that battle when it comes time to fight it. Um, they're not real efficient at getting things done. 
and there's not a whole lot of incentive for them to ever come after that. So to me, this is a tax deduction, not a gift from the government. It's keeping your money, not getting somebody else's. Uh, let's take another question. Yes, my name is Scott. I'm in northeast Alabama. I am wanting to know how to use Mylar bags and oxygen absorbers to preserve beans and rice in a food-grade plastic bucket to last for 10, 20 years. Thank you. Well, to quote a, a great redneck, it ain't hard. Um, when you're dealing with rice and beans for, for the beginning, right off the bat, you've got extensive shelf lives. Even if you were to just dump them into a bucket, fill them almost all the way to the top, throw an O2 absorber in there and stick on a, a sealed uh, lid, either a, a sealed lid you, you hammer down uh, or a gamma sealed lid. If you're looking at doing Mylar, you can actually start adding things that have less of a shelf life and, and get really extensive shelf life. But yeah, you'll get 10 years uh, to 20 years easily uh, with beans and white rice. Brown rice doesn't store as well, I'm told, but uh, I've stored brown rice in a uh, one gallon, those little, like, look like a little one gallon, just look like a white bucket. I took brown rice, put it in there for two years, right? Didn't even use an O2 absorber. Just filled it to the very top and sealed it, and just stuck it away. And wrote two, you know, wrote the date on it. And, and two years later, I cooked it. It tasted fine to me. Uh, maybe there's a risk there that I'm unaware of. So I don't know when people say not to store brown rice long term. Enough people tell you the same thing. I tend to believe them, but I also don't understand um, really why uh, people say that because I haven't any problems with it. But let's do the basic uh, way to store with a mylar bag. Um, with O2 absorbers uh, in a five-gallon bucket. I like to take the bag and put it in the bucket. I know some people aren't real fond of that method, but to me, it makes it easier to force the air out of the bag. And then I take whatever items, be it rice, beans, or whatever, and I put it into the bucket right up to as much as I can fit in uh, uh, with the mylar. Now, why I like to do this is it tends to make it easier for me to force as much air as I can out of the mylar bucket or out of the mylar bag and not overstuff it. And I then fold the top of the bag over, and, uh, well, before I do that, I put the O2 absorbers in the Mylar. And then I fold the top of the bag over and take it out. And I seal Mylar bags with an iron. I mean, that's the way I do it. That's the way I saw a guy do it on YouTube. Uh, way back when YouTube first started, I think I saw a guy do that. I went, well, that's the simple way to do this. And uh, then I put it back in the bucket. And you'll, what you'll do if you come back the next day, if it's sealed right, those O2 absorbers that you've dropped in there will suck the, the oxygen up, and when you pull it out, it'll look like it's been vacuum sealed almost. And then you just need a good sealed lid, and you can use a gamma lid. A gamma lid is, it's got a ring, it seals, and it's got like a you know a turn. Uh, like a, a, The centerpiece turns on and off, so it's easier to open. They're really made so you can open it, take something out, and close them back up. So I don't use them for that type of long-term storage. I use a simple uh, bang-down uh, lid, and I usually throw another O2 absorber in on the outside of the Mylar bag inside the bucket. You do it that way, and... Um, wheat, beans, rice, uh, good pastas made with hard, hard wheat, like anything that's made the right way for pastas, their shelf life's almost as long as your shelf life is. Um, so it's a great way to do long-term storage. That's how you do it. It's not hard. 
Uh, maybe one day I'll do a video on it. Maybe I'll put together, I could use another bucket of beans or a bucket of rice or maybe a bucket. I don't have a lot of wheat. I have some wheat but not a lot. So maybe what I'll do is I'll get some wheat and do a couple buckets of wheat and do a video for you guys on how to do that. But I get, I bet you if you go to YouTube and search for storing food in buckets with mylar on YouTube or something like that, uh, you'll find quite a bit of information on it. With that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today. Great call in Friday. Remember, folks, if you want to hear your call on the air, 866-65-THINK. Get your call in. I've worked off a lot of the backlog, even though I'm going to keep working on some of the older calls. Uh, I'm going to try to take new calls every Friday, do a call in Friday for the next few weeks anyway, see how it works out. I think it's a good way to mix things up, hear back from the audience. Please get to your point quickly. Remember, I do listener feedback shows on Monday. You can send me an email if you're more comfortable with that, and I'll answer your email or read your email on the air when you send me emails. I want to give you the same pieces of advice. Please don't write a book. Or, if you feel compelled to write a book, sometimes I read your books. I am much more likely to read your book if you say, Jack, I have a question. It is, and in one or two sentences, ask your question. And then give me all the backgrounds you want to after that. If you bury your question inside of eight paragraphs, I get tired I work really hard, and I don't have the time to read as much email as I get when it's that deep unless you hook me with your question. I'm being honest with you. Most people say, oh, we read everything, and we do what we can. I'm being flat-out honest. You want your call on the air? Get to your point quickly. You want your email uh, read by me? Get to your point quickly. Then throw in additional information because I may need it. But that way I can go take what I need where your question may be, oh, here's an answer. A lot of times I get a question by email, I don't even read it online because it's one I've done online a hundred times. And I just send you, hey, check this out, or do this, right? So I'll do what I can if you help me help you with the calls. Try to get your point out in the first uh, 60 seconds. You get up to two minutes to talk. If you want to keep talking, go ahead. It's easy for me to trim the end off if I need to for some reason. And again, when you call in, 866-65-THINK. If you have any information you don't want in the air, don't give it to me. Uh, I won't put it on the air if you tell me not to, I'll, but I'm not going to have your call. I'm not going to edit that out for you. You know what you want heard. I respect your privacy, but if you call in, please only give what you want heard. With that, I'm going to wrap up. Again, thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for being part of Call On Friday. Thanks for supporting the Survival Podcast. Uh, remember to check out maybe over the weekend. I'll put a link today to uh, Big John Lipscomb's website, my interview with Big John Lipscomb. That was great. I'm going to be asking him to come on the Survival Podcast as my guest. If you email him or talk to him often, let him know you'd like to hear him over here. Give him a little incentive to come on the air with me. I'd like to give him as much airtime as he gave me. He let me talk a lot. I'd like to bring on and let him talk a lot. Uh, again, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.